So friends, uh, last Sunday, we, in all around the world, basically we were celebrating Christians and non-Christians were celebrating Easter. In culture, I think the celebrations are filled with, with eggs, with chocolates, music, and bunnies looking kind of funny. So business go crazy in trying to selling one more chocolate. And sugar levels go very high for those who have children. You know, they became chaotic, running everywhere. And, you know, the parents go nuts as well because you know how things are. And did I mention chocolate? Yes, lots of chocolate. But it has not always been like that. You know, Christian celebrations, they have been associated with what's called the Holy Week, a time of solemn reflection, which according to the traditions follow the footsteps of Christ in his crucifixion and in his resurrection on Easter Sunday. In the Easter tradition itself, of course, it, as far as it refers to the biblical account, it actually goes back and builds up on another tradition, the tradition that we just read, the tradition of the Passover, which is this commemoration of the liberation of the Jewish people by God from their captivity in Egypt. So in these celebrations that... Uh, last for seven or eight days, depending on the Jewish tradition, they would celebrate in, in various forms. They would abstain from work, they would pray, they would follow a very strict diet, which I'm sure does include chocolate eggs, and they would have a Passover meal with a lamb, and they would sing. They would sing as well. And they would sing a special set of psalms, comprising from Psalm 113 to 118. This is called the Egyptian Hallel. Being London, you probably have heard of Halal, but no, it's Hallel. It's, it's close. Hallel means praise. And Jesus most probably sang these Psalms in his life, especially in the Lord's Supper. We actually see a, a mention, oh, the closest to a mention to that. Let's see, for instance, in Matthew 26, 26 to 30, I'll, I'll quickly read in the institution of the Lord's Supper. Now, as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. The hymn that they sung here is most likely Psalm 114. So this psalm was uh, very special, and through history, um, we, we see very people who um, considered as a well-loved psalms. Um, I mentioned in passing the French Huguenots, which had a, a brilliant story that we will mention later on. The psalm itself is a very brief short psalm, as we just read. Uh, it's comprised of eight verses, eight, uh, four stanzas of two verses each. It begins with this story of the divine intervention when God comes to rescue his people. 
And almost this, this story evoked a response. The psalm comes, um, in the, the psalmist assesses the nature's response of this God's intervention, and he closes with, with uh, an answer. He, he closes, uh, he goes on and builds up with uh, questions to these reactions when he says, why the, 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 the sea look and fled? And then he closes with an answer to his own question that is a message of a God who intervenes in the affairs of his people, walking his will towards their good. So in that, we try to see there's four points for each of his stances, and we try to look at them here. So the first one would be the rescue from God. You will find that in verses 1 and 2. So when Israel went out of Egypt, the house of Jacob from a people of strange language, Judah became his sanctuary, Israel his dominion. So the psalm starts, is actually a, a historical psalm, so it starts with recounting, the, in a nutshell, the narrative of Exodus. And, but by sure, there's much packed here that we can try to unfold a little bit just so we can actually understand the full weight of the passage. For if you look at this first word, when, when Israel, when, at a given time, at in which circumstances, so when, we, for us to unfold what is packed into this word, I think we need to look at the history, and that's why we had those readings before. Israel had arrived in Egypt by Joseph when a great famine struck their land. So through him, they had enjoyed favor in the eyes of a pharaoh for some time. They progressed, they, the population increased. And Joseph, Joseph actually became sort of a prime minister of, of Egypt. But years passed, and another pharaoh, another pharaoh came who did not know Joseph, and brought a great burden to the lives of the Jewish people in Egypt. And it had been 400 years, 400 years, they had been in servitude and in bondage before God's deliverance came. For long centuries, the people of God had to toil the difficult labor under the heavy hand of Egyptian masters. 400 years. So when it says, when you think about this 400 years, and who were the Egyptians? Let us consider what were the extent of the power so we see the size of the deliverance as well. I think it suffice to say that even today when we survey the scraps of the Egyptian civilization, we see the ruins, we see the pyramids, we still stand in awe of it. If you can go to Egypt, you can go to the British Museum and you will find a great deal there. Oh, you can Google it, but if you look at that, you see the majesty in architecture, in, in their science. It's it's the it's it's grand. It it really uh, leaves I know. But let alone seeing that empire at the height of its splendor, when the psalmist writes here, what a tremendous display of power! And with that power was a power that was being used to subjugate, to overpower, and to oppress God's people. But when? Now, did you get the, 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 heavy, the heaviness of this word here? But when Israel went out of Egypt, 
That's what the psalmist had in mind. Because when God enters into the story, the story changes. And he did it in a very visible fashion, didn't he? Didn't he? Because if you look at the lives, just briefly before that, those events, you see Moses and how Mo, Moses was, was raised. Pharaoh was actually trying to kill the Jewish babies. And in, in, a, in a series of events, there was this edict to, to kill the, the baby boys. And in this series of events, God rescued him and protected him and enabled him to become that great leader. And through Moses, the, you know, he was the mediator that also was used to, uh, by God to bring the ten plagues of Egypt. There was a great disaster. Under his lead, we witnessed these events of the Passover. So on the tenth plague, when the death of the firstborn, we see that the angel of death would pass over the dwellings that were sprinkled by the blood of the Lamb. But it wasn't Moses. It wasn't Moses who did it all. It was God. And that's what we see in verse 1. Although God is not mentioned, that's what we are going to discover. That Israel went out of Egypt by the hand of God. The Jacob, that family whose twelve tribes had arrived and suffered for those four long centuries. They had now finally been delivered and it says here, uh, I mentioned that some people might not relate quite well, but from the, a people of a strange language. So they had been, when they went out, they had been delivered from a house, from, from a people of a strange language. I can quite relate with that. You probably can tell so far. But there is this struggle with the language. Uh, actually refer to another thing that is quite amazing. Imagine for 400 years, these people still found that the Egyptian language was a strange language. They kept their own identity. They didn't mix. You know, that language, that way of communication was unfamiliar to them. And the psalmist goes on saying that this rescue from God is not a purposeless rescue. Actually, they, he, he rescued them, God delivered them. He did to establish a divine government in Israel. When he uses the verse, Judah became his sanctuary in Israel, his dominion. So Judah and Benjamin rep- representing the southern kingdom and Israel, the northern kingdom. So all and all encompassing, it's north and south, God is a comprehensive God in saving his people. Okay, we, we might see these things, it's just a historical recollection, but how can we actually apply that to our lives today? And our hope will be evident that whatever God did that, there, he did it out of love for his people. And his redemptive love, his redemptive love that was manifested through this sovereign power to save should show us today that this God that is not almighty and has all of this power, but he's interested in our own affairs and he will even intervene in history to save us. So whatever are your circumstances today, I think the prospects might look Grim, scary, unfavorable. 
Who knows? Perhaps you've been even praying for him. You've been, you've been praying for financial help. You need a new job. A place in university. Who knows? Perhaps your problems, your problems are from a different level. Perhaps it's, it's looking inside and you're dealing with these struggles, with a broken heart, with uh, perhaps a deeper spiritual issue that it, perhaps is a sin, it's something that you're struggling inside, a sin that for a long time have overpowered you, had enslaved you and had kept in bondage. Know this for sure, that for every problem there is but one God. And though it might seem like he tarries, wait, for in his appointed time he will come. He has come to Egypt and he will come to you. I think that sounded a little bit like at the end of the sermon, but there's much more. Uh, let's try to cover it quickly. I think we, we have seen that God timely rescues his people. But now let's see the reaction that it prompts this rescuing, the salvation prompts from nature. And we see that in the next stanza we see in verses 3 and 4. The sea looked and fled. Jordan turned back. The mountains escaped like rams, the hills like lambs. I can't help but be in awe of the... This is the power of poetry. See, like we spent some time reading Exodus and, and Joshua here and trying to convey this message that in just in two verses are alluded so vividly. The psalmist makes use of these personified responses to list how creation reacts to the presence of God. These, these marvels that we crossing of the Red Sea that we see, uh, the sea looked and fled, and um, Jordan turning back, and the, the mountains keep like rams, and the hills like lambs. So we see the crossing of the Red Sea. We see the crossing of the uh, Jordan River by Joshua. These are milestones that they the, the mark the beginning and the end of the Exodus narrative. So when leaving Egypt, they cross the Red Sea, and when arriving Canaan, they cross Jordan. So it's it's very uh, it, they are put here in a very purposeful manner, and the the episode of the mountains skipping like realms might not be very obvious, but uh, this is actually uh, referring to Sinai and the giving of the law. So it, it, this is a very emblematic episode in a sense that it conveys the um, identification of people. When you look at Jewish people, they are identified with the law, with the Torah. And they had Moses as the mediator of the passage, of that giving of the law when God enters into contract, into covenant with his people. And even in associating these uh, mountains with lambs, it's a bit humorous, isn't it? Like you see, like mountains skipping. And when you think about lambs skipping, they, they do it in such a sudden way, don't they? Uh, in a joyful way sometimes, a very innocent way. But it's almost as if they are, in a way, being joyful, yes, saluting God's goodness in rescuing uh, his people. But also skipping and fleeing in the way that they are also being fearful and swift is keeping away of God's presence, of his dreadful majesty. So we may consider here that these actions 
are not solely described to magnify the sense of adoration as we see these marvelous feats of God, but also that we see that he's got like a fatherly care for us. Psalm 114 celebrates the power of God to save his people, a power that is not only over nations, not only over Egypt in saving, but in no encompassing power also over nature. It shows God's providence in history. And we ought to see providence as we read this psalm as a prevailing theme, as an underlying uh, principle in that, don't we? What is providence, though? The Westminster Confession of Faith, actually, in chapter 5, says something that I will quote here, which is a good definition, saying, God, the great creator of all things, uphold, directed, dispose, and govern all creatures, actions, and things from the greatest even to the least, by his most wise and holy providence, according to his infallible foreknowledge, and the free and immutable counsel of his own will, to the praise of his glory, of his wisdom, power, justice, goodness, and mercy. Um. I'm speechless. It's, it's a really good and moving description. But for me, what I would like you to get from that is this, from the greatest to the least, God governs all to the praise of his wisdom, power, justice, goodness, and mercy, from the greatest to the least. So as we, as we spend some time, in, as we think about this historical recollection and how God saved this people in history. Does that move your heart? Do this display of power over creation as well, does that fill you with awe? I hope it will, for even in your personal circumstances, whatever obstacle, as big as they may be, as strong as they may seem, as mountainous as they may look, in God's providence, it can be removed. I hope this display of power warms your heart to the point of generating faith, even if it's just a little faith, even a little faith, if it's a saving faith, it's faith. Not because of the person who has it, but because of the God who gives it. But there is more packed in this psalm. And this is followed by symmetrical questions posed against these verses that we've seen. So we've seen the psalm is saying, What ails you, O sea, that you flee? O Jordan, that you turn back? O mountains, that you skip like rams? O hills like lambs? It looks a bit like he's just uh, like a referring or Requoting himself again, but no, the psalmist actually comes here with a very nice resource. Some commentators have actually suggested that these questions were pointing to a bewilderment, a perplexity, a confusion of the psalmist, saying, well, the sea looked and fled. Why? I I can't understand. Uh, You were not supposed to do that. It goes contrary to the rules of logic. Seas... 
are not supposed to flee, let alone even to look, by the way. That would imply, and that is a good point, that would imply that man, a creature that is made in the image of God, that has reason, fails to understand truths that even seas, that even mountains can understand. That nature, without any faculty of reason, can actually submit, can honor, and can proclaim God's power. And whilst I think this line of thought has its value and somehow depicts especially the lost man without God, I think that's not what the author has in view here. For if we see, we can actually see that he's using rhetorical speech, isn't he? He knows the answer that he's going for. The answer actually follows it. But the use of poetic language here for this psalmist what he wants is to apostrophize, to create this tension, this, this climatic tension, like a crescendo that will then burst into his great response to the readers. So I mentioned again the French Huguenots. The French Huguenots were this protest um, reform, of the reform tradition, reformers in, in one sense of the 16th century. They were followers of the Calvin's teaching. France of the 1500s uh, it was a very different country from what we, we know today. It was very, very religious, and it was uh, highly Catholic. But the French Huguenots, actually, they grew to represent almost 10% of the population. And in a similar fashion, then it came a king who didn't know the Huguenots, who were not inclined to allow religious liberty, and he started, he started to persecute them. And they were vigorously persecuted during many, many years, centuries actually as well. Do you know what's beautiful? Do you know where did they go to seek comfort? Where do they frequently recur? Psalm 114. They would sing it frequently, and they would sing it to the Genevan tune I just shared with, with Mary the other day. It's a very strange tune, uh, but they would sing it very frequently because they identified with the sentiment of persecution and deliverance. And in one sense, Psalm 114 became uh, an anthem of the Reformation. I hope when we are confronted with these rhetorical questions here, that we, our answer will be assertive as the psalmist. Like the French Huguenots who were drawn to scripture and found comfort when facing persecutions, that we will do likewise. For they knew why there were obstacles in their lives and they knew where deliverance came from. So in ending, in closing, we see the last point which is the response of men we see the rescue of God. We see the reaction of nature. We see, we, we've seen this rhetorical question, and now we've seen the response of man. We see that in the last two verses. Tremble, O earth, at the presence of the Lord, at the presence of the God of Jacob, who turns the rock into a pool of water, the flint into a spring of water. If you pay, actually, attention to the way that the psalm goes, 
you see that the name of God is not mentioned so far. And again, I think this is in the psalmist's design to create distinction, to not revealing his answer, to create this augmented sense of awe when we see this revealed. He was teasing us, arousing our curiosity. The author wanted us to feel this climax when he says, Tremble, O earth, at the presence of God. Tremble. That is the right response. That is the appropriate behavior before a, a God who is holy, holy, holy. It's trembling. That sounds a bit awkward to us. I'm going to read the passage here. There's a, a book in uh, the Chronicles of Narnia, which is an allegorical um, an allegory by, by Lewis. And there are these two girls. I think it's in the first book. So it's Susan and Lucy. And they are getting ready to meet Aslam, the lion, which represents Christ in the book. And there are these two talking animals, Mr. and Mrs. Beaver. And they prepare the children for, for this encounter. Oh, said Susan, I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. That you will, dearie, said Mrs. Beaver. And make no mistake, if there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they are either braver than most or just silly. Then isn't it safe? said Lucy. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he is good. He is the king, I tell you. It's a beautiful image. Perhaps it goes quite against what the world wants to talk to us, even about our Christ. Because especially, I think, most, more commonly in times of Christmas, this figure of Jesus, meek and mild, peace and love, it is not the whole picture of his character. From scriptures, we actually are told of a God of righteous wrath. A God who punishes the wicked and will not negotiate his justice. Our God, as we've seen in Hebrews, is a consuming fire. Reverence and awe are due to him. And the good thing is that this God not only saves, not only rescues his people, but he also continues to provide. So in closing, we see these events when he is providing water from rocks. And this clearly points us to Christ. Well, how so, you might be asking. Okay, so scripture once again responds us. In First Corinthians 10, we see that all and all we were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them. And the rock was Christ. It can't get much clearer than this. So let me tell you, upon this intimation... This series of questions proposed by the psalm, you and I, we have been challenged tonight to a new understanding of, of life and history. This Easter or Passover, as we, we've seen, perhaps you are meditating about things of life, but I ask that when you meditate upon these verses, that you think how Israel has been miraculously saved by 
Egypt into a new life in Canaan. But that was a shadow of what was to come. So when you think about the resurrection, think about the even greater salvation that is available for those who believe that are to be found in Christ, who deliver us from sin into the eternal life. There is a God who manifests powerfully in this world. He governs nature and he rules over death. Perhaps you like to continue your life in the way you see fit, ignoring the reality of the cross and what he has achieved for all. But I hope that you would see that Christ is far greater than the pyramids of Egypt. You can try resisting the calling of God, be it to repentance, be it to rebuke, but the scriptures undeniably calls you to do otherwise. Verse 8 is a direct reference to these events that we, we, we're talking about in Exodus 17, 1 to 7, where Joshua, uh, where people were in the desert and they were arguing and quarreling with God about water to quench their thirst. God provides for that, but not without a warning. And I, I was amazed. We, we were talking about providence and this morning we actually there were so many things that happened this very day and that in God's providence led me to this point in time here. This morning, for instance, we sang Psalm 95, 8, and it, it struck me when it says, Do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day at Massa in the wilderness, which is, which is a re- reference to this very verse. God is in control of all things. Psalm 114, it's a beautiful psalm. It sits in a very special place in history, in the life of Jesus. It's a brief, very brief psalm that is this poetic image condensing it. And it comes with these great warnings, with great reminders. Jews would sing them and they would, they still sing in remembrance of God's deliverance of Israel and the house of bondage led by Moses. As I've said before, this was probably one of the the last songs that Jesus sang before his death. And now we can sing it as a new song. A song that reminds us not only of the amazing salvation brought by God in Egypt, but the eternal deliverance there is in Christ. I had entitled this sermon, The New Song of Easter, just so we could visit these traditions in one sense. But it's not a new song. Afterwards, But it's made new when in Christ we are made new. And then we sing it with new hearts. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, give us eyes that we may contemplate your power, your majesty, your splendor, your justice, your wrath, your mercy that we may tremble in your presence, in awe and in love of you, and not in fear and in condemnation. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed, but he has been vindicated in his resurrection, and it is in his name that we pray. Amen.